Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Industrial REITs first quarter 2020 conference call. Before we begin, let me remind everyone that during a conference call, management may make statements containing forward-looking information. This forward-looking information is based on numbers of assumptions and is subject to a number of known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from those disclosed or implied. We direct you to the company's earnings release MDNA, and other security filings for additional information about these assumptions, risks, and uncertainties. And I'd like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Scott Fred Erickson, Chief Executive Officer. Please go ahead, Mr. Fred Erickson. All right. Good morning, and thank you for joining us. With me today are Judd Gillitz, the REIT CFO, and Matt Semino, the REIT COO. Before discussing our first quarter results, I wanted to provide a few comments regarding the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. As we mentioned in our April business update, the REIT is closely monitoring developments regarding COVID-19, and we continue to follow all guidelines issued by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and federal, state, and municipal governments. In compliance with municipal stay-at-home orders, our employees have been working from home since mid-March, but I'm proud to say that working remotely hasn't impacted our ability to effectively manage the portfolio and proactively engage with and assist our tenants. As we've said before, many of the REIT's tenants are considered essential businesses or suppliers to essential businesses, and the dedication and responsiveness of our team is helping to ensure these businesses can survive and serve their customers during the pandemic by having a safe and continuous access to their facilities. Judd and Matt will also provide more context on what we're seeing as it relates to rent collections and tenant deferral requests, but before that, I want to mention a few highlights from the quarter. It was a busy and productive start to 2020. In the quarter, we raised approximately $270 million in gross proceeds from an offering of subscription receipts and expanded our existing unsecured credit facility by $600 million. We added 27 high-quality distribution buildings, totaling 9.2 million square feet, and three land parcels with the capacity to develop an additional 2.1 million square feet. From an operational standpoint, Rent growth on leasing activity and the positive impact from our acquisition activity continued to enhance our NOI. We continued to see favorable releasing spreads, and we were able to maintain high occupancy, finishing the quarter with approximately 97.3% of our portfolio leased. And with minimal lease renewals or debt maturities remaining for the rest of 2020, ample liquidity, and access to established private capital resources, we believe we're well positioned to weather the current period of market volatility and economic disruption. With that, I'll now turn things over to Judd to discuss the REIT's financial results in more detail. Thanks, Scott, and good morning, everyone. Before I begin, let me remind everyone that all figures discussed today are stated in U.S. dollars. Total investment properties revenue was $32.5 million for the quarter, an increase of 28.9% over last year primarily due to the 2019 and 2020 acquisitions with additional contributions from increased base rent. 
The REIT also earned management fee revenue of approximately $273,000 in the quarter. Net operating income for the quarter was $23.4 million, also up 28.9% from last year. And same properties NOI was up 1.4% for the quarter, driven mainly by positive releasing spreads and existing rent bumps, but partially offset by a 1% reduction in same property occupancy. GNA expense for the quarter, excluding any fair value adjustments, was approximately $3.4 million. FFO and AFFO for the quarter were up 43.0% and 53.5% respectively. FFO and AFFO were 18.4 cents per unit and 13.7 cents per unit respectively. On a per unit basis, FFO was up 4.5% and AFFO was up 11.4%. Both FFO and AFFO were mainly impacted by increased properties revenue due to acquisitions, increases in base rent, and a reduction in general and administrative expenses compared to the prior period. They were also impacted by a 37.2% increase in the weighted average number of units outstanding compared to the same period last year. Our ACFO payout ratio for the quarter was 107.6% compared to 112.7% in the same period last year. The ACFO payout ratio was directly affected by the timing of equity raises in October 2019 and February 2020 and the deployment of those funds. As of March 31, 2020, the REIT had approximately $112.3 million available to be drawn on our credit facility, in addition to cash on hand of $50.4 million. We have only one mortgage loan totaling $31.8 million maturing in 2020 and five mortgage loans totaling approximately $72.5 million maturing in 2021. The REIT expects the refinancings of these 2020 and 2021 loan maturities to increase the REIT's overall liquidity position as the loan-to-value on these loans is approximately 40% based on our current IFRS fair value of the underlying properties. The REIT is also reviewing all planned discretionary capital expenditures and where prudent, deferring such expenditures to the second half of 2020 or into 2021. During the quarter, the REIT made several notable acquisitions and one disposition as follows. On January 8th, the REIT acquired a 100% occupied distribution property located in Portland, Oregon, for a purchase price of $16.2 million, exclusive of closing and transaction costs. The purchase price represented a going-in cap rate of 5.6% and was satisfied with funds from the credit facility and cash on hand. On January 27th, the REIT sold its only office project in an adjacent land parcel located 4350 and 4400 Baker Road in Minnetonka, Minnesota, receiving net cash proceeds of $29.4 million, inclusive of closing and working capital adjustments. Proceeds from the sale were used to partially repay outstanding debt from the credit also during the quarter, the REIT acquired two land parcels located in Egan, Minnesota and Houston, Texas for an aggregate purchase price of $13.8 million, exclusive of closing and transaction costs. The REIT is expected to contribute the properties into joint ventures with private capital partners and develop approximately 700,000 square feet of distribution buildings on the sites. On March 26, 2020, the REIT acquired the Pirate Portfolio a portfolio of 26 distribution properties in one land parcel located in multiple states across the U.S. for a purchase price of $730 million, exclusive of closing and transaction costs, representing a going-in cap rate of 5.5% and 
a stabilized cap rate of approximately 5.9%. In addition to the quarter's investment activity, the REIT entered into several noteworthy transactions to fund its acquisition activity. On February 3rd, 2020, the REIT entered into an agreement to economically fix the interest rate for a $125 million term loan under a credit facility using an interest rate swap at LIBOR of 1.31% plus an applicable margin based on leverage. On February 27th, the REIT issued 18.85 million subscription receipts, inclusive of the full over-allotment at a price of $14.35 per subscription receipt. The subscription receipts were automatically converted to REIT units upon closing of the Pirate Portfolio acquisition on March 26th. On February 28th, the REIT entered into a forward swap to economically fix the interest rate on $470 million of term loans at an average LIBOR rate of 93 basis points plus an applicable margin based on leverage. On March 2nd, the REIT repaid a property-level loan with a principal balance of approximately $51.8 million with funds from a term loan under our credit facility. The properties previously encumbered by the property-level loan were added to the facility's unencumbered asset pool, thereby increasing availability. On March 26, 2020, in connection with the acquisition of the Pirate Portfolio, the REIT amended and restated its unsecured credit facility, increasing capacity from $575 million to $1.175 billion. The amendment increased the revolver by $130 million and the term loans by $470 million. Additionally, the revolver's maturity date was extended to March 26, 2024, with the option for two six-month extensions. Following the completion of the REIT's first quarter acquisitions, we have turned our focus to capital recycling in an effort to dispose of properties that we judge to no longer be core to our future growth. We expect to ramp up capital recycling in 2020 and 2021 in an effort to further strengthen the REIT's balance sheet and create additional flexibility to invest in our private capital development pipeline. I'll now turn things over to Matt to provide an operational update. Thanks, Judd, and good morning, everyone. Let me start with a brief update on rent collection picking up from our update uh, as of last month. As of today, we've received approximately 98% and 97% of April and May rents, respectively. The REIT has currently received requests for some form of short-term rent deferment from tenants representing approximately 15% of annualized gross rents. However, similar to April, the REIT has yet to agree to any such deferrals. Tenant requests for relief include opportunistic or generic inquiries from some large, strong credit tenants, and we expect the actual number of deferrals granted to be lower than the amount requested. Turning to new lease activity, the REIT renewed 93.8% of the approximately 491,000 square feet of leases expiring in the quarter and leased the remaining 6.2% to a new tenant. Renewals commencing in the quarter had a weighted average cash releasing spread and straight line rent releasing spread of 4.5% and 17.1% respectively. During the quarter, the REIT also renewed three leases totaling approximately 753,000 square feet with commencement dates after March 31, 2020. These renewals had a weighted average cash releasing spread and straight line rent releasing spread of 10.4% and 16.1% respectively. As of March 31, 2020, remaining 2020 lease expirations consisted of approximately 359,000 square feet 
or 1.1% of the portfolio's gross leasable area. Our team is also actively working on 2021 lease expirations. The REIT has approximately 2.9 million square feet of remaining 2021 lease expirations, the majority of which is set to expire in the second half of the year. The REIT ended the quarter with occupancy of 97.3% and a portfolio weighted average remaining lease term of 4.7 years. Within our private capital development pipeline, we currently have approximately 2.4 million square feet at various stages in the development process. One of our buildings in Bayonne, New Jersey has now been fully leased to a single tenant. Three projects, including a second building in Bayonne and buildings in the Inland Empire of California and the Cincinnati markets have recently wrapped up construction and are currently being marketed for lease. We have three other projects in pre-construction or construction in the Minneapolis, Chicago, and Houston markets. With that update, I'll now turn things back to Scott to wrap up. Thanks, Matt. In closing, I want to express my thanks and gratitude to our hardworking team of professionals. In addition to working tirelessly to mitigate the immediate impacts of COVID-19 on our business, our entire team remains focused on enhancing the diversity and stability of our cash flows and building value over the long term through disciplined capital recycling and proactive asset management. Thanks for your time and attention this morning. We'd now be pleased to answer any questions you may have. We will now begin the question and answer session. To ask a question, you may press star than one on your touchtone phone. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing the keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. At this time, we will pause momentarily to assemble our roster. First question comes from Chris Coopery, CIVC. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning, guys. Um, just with respect to um, the um, the fifteen percent that have uh, requested uh, deferrals, uh, I think you characterize that a majority of that is from you know, kind of generic requests from strong credit tenants. Is, is it a hundred percent of that amount, or just a majority? Or no, I, I mean, I, and I would say it's you know, there's a it's a it's a mix. There are you know that that, that group consists of about twenty nine tenants. So it's divided across a number of different situations. And so I think that, you know, the range of, of profiles there ranges from someone who is a smaller tenant, you know, with a, a retail-facing business, a, you know, a gymnastics studio, for example, a, that type of a profile, to a large multinational corporation that sent out a generic request to all landlords, including retail and office landlords. Uh, you know, and, and I think, as you can appreciate, we're spending our time and attention uh, on the former, and so you know, there, I wouldn't chop it up in terms of percentages. I guess the, you know the one thing I can say is, you know, statistically, we've got a portfolio that consists of an average tenant size of 172,000 square feet. So most of what we're seeing in the market in terms of true need for deferral and actual distress is is coming in you know in the smaller base spaces. And so I think we're, you know we're, we're not seeing a lot of this, and I think when we are seeing it, it's uh, you know it's specifically tailored to a tenant that's uniquely affected by what's going on because they can't operate in their space. For for much of our logistics and distribution tenants, it's it's business as usual, or in many cases, it's actually increased business. Um, but but statistically, just two thirds of the, the tenants that have requested 
have actually paid April and May rent, just to, to give you a sense for kind of the context there. So for those big tenants that have put out the generic request to see what happens, you know, two-thirds of everyone that's asked us has still ended up paying both April and May rent. Right. Um, they're just trying to be opportunistic, I guess. Um, and then maybe just turning uh, to the, um, the the private capital pipeline, um, the uh, the Bayon property that's fully leased. Um, maybe can you talk to us about what the outlook for that that asset um, or what the next step for that asset is? And then just generally speaking, your conversations with your private capital partners. Uh, what, what's the overall kind of uh, thinking um, that, that 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 they have right now? I mean, look, I I, I think. Stepping one level higher than maybe Bayonne, um, there just aren't a lot of trades happening in the industrial market right now. And part of the problem, as I'm sure you can imagine, Chris, is that you can't get on an airplane to go look at a building. You can't you can't send your third-party report providers out to the building to conduct their diligence or your diligence. Um, and so it really grinds to a halt a lot of the capital markets activity uh, in the space. And 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 I guess at a high level, in our private capital business. We're screening more opportunities after COVID kicked in than we were pre-COVID um, because there's a lot of dislocation in the market. And, and within the deals that we're screening, I mean, there's some that we've dropped. Um, others were convicted on and we're proceeding on, um, and still others that will proceed on only if we get more time or a repricing activity. And I, that's really a case-by-case -case basis, I guess. But the good news is there's a lot of opportunities, and our team is busy screening quite a few things in the market. Turning, I guess, closer to your question, um, the Bayonne is really a two-building project, and so the existing building, the one that we remodeled, is the one that we leased long-term to a household name company, and we're very pleased with that result. Um, we've got good activity on the other building there, uh, but we've always thought of that as a project, a two-building project, and so we still got a little bit of wood to chop there. Although there's activity, we don't have anything signed on the brand new building there, but we're encouraged. Um, and then, you know, we've got some acti some activity on our Inland Empire facility. And so there's, there's, despite what I've heard some of the others say, there is good activity in the industrial market. Um, a lot of it is e-commerce driven, but uh, there is there's pretty good activity out there. So we're encouraged that we're going to be successful in leasing some of the stuff in the market. And then, you know, we'll have to turn our attention to which deals we want to pursue of the ones we're screening. Thanks very much. Thank you. Our next question is from Mike Marquettis, Desjardins. Please go ahead. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Um, a couple more questions on my end here. First one is just a quick one on Bayonne. Would you be able to fill us in on the tenant profile of the um, tenant who has leased the first building? Uh, it's, a, it's a public company, Mike. I, we, I don't comment specifically on the on the tenant name, but uh, strong credit public company. Um, I was actually just thinking, I uh, appreciate you don't want to name them, but maybe just generically on the uh, the industry or, or use. I, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a variety of uses, but I, I'm trying to think specifically. You know, they're a multinational where they've got a lot of different businesses, and I'm trying to think specifically what they do in that building. I, yeah, okay. we'll, no have, we'll have to get back on that one. No problem. Okay. Um, just in terms of the um, your your tenant profile, appreciate that you've had 170 some odd thousand square feet as your average tenant size. Um, I was wondering with 
with respect to you know given that you just did the the due diligence on the um the seven hundred thirty million dollar acquisition and, and in response to covid if you guys have any done any more sort of granular scraping in terms of um, what percentage of your base rent comes from small bay versus large bay um, and then perhaps if you've done any additional work in terms of uh, what percentage of rent comes from different industry sectors. I, I, I'll start with the first piece. I mean, I, we haven't really chopped it up, um, you know, small bay versus more bulk product. Um, we're, we're probably more focused on the underlying profile of the tenant or the use, I, I, you know, and then I think the statistics on building size obviously are are readily available, but we haven't chopped it up into small versus large in that respect. Um, in terms of industry exposure, I mean, I think we obviously, you know, did a deep dive most recently uh, on the Pirate portfolio, and you know, I think you understand the profile, and everyone has seen our disclosures on the profile of that portfolio in terms of the percentage of ingress investment-grade tenants. Um, so we've obviously been quite focused, uh, as everyone has, on, on credit strength and tenant profile in this environment. And, and really what we've been chopping up you know, more recently over the last year or two is really just sector exposure. Um, the, the, I think as we often comment, the, the overall exposure is pretty diversified across um, you know, what we really categorize as e traditional e-commerce, third-party logistics, and consumer products companies. And it's a pretty even balance between those three groups. And then you know, if you chop that up even further by by sector, you know, unique exposure to industries of, of recent concern like automotive and airline, we're at, you know, less than 10% of exposure to industries that we think are, you know, uniquely under pressure in the current environment. So I guess that's maybe a, a slight redirect, but that's how we're looking at it right now, Mike. No, that, that's helpful, actually, the, the less than 10% to industries uniquely under pressure. Actually, that's a, that's a good way of phrasing it. Thank you. Okay, um, and I, just one clarification on my part. Um, the 15, you say 15% of annualized revenue, but just to be clear, that 15% is really a, a percentage of a monthly obligation, correct? It's if someone was asking for a, sh a short-term, some form of short-term deferral, um, presumably it's not for an entire year. It's It's based on some sort of duration, which lasts anywhere from one to three months at this juncture. Yeah, that's right. I think the yeah, the 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 average request that we've seen has been for two or three months. You know, with a deferral timeline, TBD. Some looking to just push it out to later in 2020. Some maybe looking to push it out into early 2021. But that's really the the extent of what we've seen in terms of the ask. And again, we haven't you know we haven't agreed to to any of that. So I do, we don't have a great anecdotal uh, pool to to give you data on. But I, I think the way we're the way we're looking at it is. You know, of that 15 percent, um, you know, we think there's probably 75 percent of that group is just a no. Like, we don't expect to really entertain, um, but you know, in, any conversation about deferral unless it is accompanied by some form of a mutually beneficial lease modification, you know, such as an amendment. And, and I will tell you, you know, we just we, we just struck a deal with a tenant that you know originally came to us asking for some flexibility, and that morphed into a conversation for a five-year extension, you know, with a double-digit releasing spread, and, and that rent ended up not even being deferred in the short term. So I think, you know, largely dependent on the profile of the tenant, but, you know, we're, we're paying a lot of attention to what the story is and what the use is and how they're uniquely affected by what's going on. And, you know, we're trying to be a good partner in, in those conversations. And so, you know, in some instances, I think it's a win-win where we can give people some flexibility and some long-term 
stability in terms of when, you know, their access to the space, you know, because I think a lot of these e-commerce tenants are seeing uh, an uptick in their business and needing to lock down space and make sure that they can accommodate what they expect to be a, a pretty aggressive ramp up coming, on, coming out of uh, state and municipal lockdowns. Okay, thank you. And while Matt was answering that, I looked back at my notes. It's Annexter is the, is the company that we lease to Bayonne, and they provide service to ComEd, and so it's really electrical infrastructure support for big and small electrical grid components. And so the people that are out in the field that need, you know, spools of cable or, or transformer boxes or things like that, that's really what they're doing in that facility. Got it. Thank you. Um, last one for me before I turn it back. Just on the, um, um, gee, Scott, now you threw me for a brain loop there. Um, <laughs> appreciate the color, but now you threw me off. You know what? I'll turn it back, and then if I can remember, I'll loop back in. Thanks. No, sorry about that, Mike. No, no. Thank you. Our next question comes from Brad Sturgis, IA Securities. Please go ahead. Hi there. Hey, Brad. Just uh, with respect to the the lease the lease maturities that you have left to do this year, it's, it's a small amount of space uh, relative to the size of the portfolio. But any uh, initial expectations in terms of retention rate or um, uh, rent spreads that you, you think you can achieve with that space? You know, it's a it, it's kind of a mixed bag, Brad. Um, it, there's not a lot, no large tenants really in that remaining 2020 pool. Um, so that's you know that those are most spaces that are 100,000 feet or under. Um, you know, and I, I think my my expectation is that you'll see rent spreads that are consistent with our historical experience. And again, the the example I cited um, that you know that originally came about as a conversation, you know, a COVID-induced conversation led to an amendment. You know, I think that's a good example of I guess where we're seeing you know market strength in the sense that that's a 2021 renewal. And, you know, we're looking at a five-year extension with what we expect to be a double-digit releasing cash releasing spread there. So I think that's, that's a, I guess we're optimistic that that experience will be the experience in, in other cases in that 2021 uh, renewal group as well. And, again, some variability just based on the specific tenancy or the specific market. But so far, um, you know, we, we've had good – uh, good momentum on the leasing front, notwithstanding you know everything that's going on with COVID. Are you know I guess particularly the smaller smaller bay tenants are they are if they are looking at a renewal at, at the moment are they looking for a shorter term renewal till they get better clarity on their own financial position or still pursuing more of a like a five year deal? Yeah, and again I don't have a great sample set on that. I think a lot of that has you know that that activity has slowed down. I think you know to um, consistent with our commentary about the, the group, the profile of tenants that are likely most affected by everything that's happening in the market, uh, we're seeing a lot of those businesses just on pause. And so, I, you know, we haven't really been entertaining a lot of leasing discussions with uh, with smaller tenants necessarily. So again, I, you know, that's probably a case by case um, analysis in terms of what what they need for their business in terms of locking down space. So I don't have not a again not no. Uh, no large sample size to draw on to give you much color there. In terms of uh, market rents, uh, any change so far that you've seen in the last couple of months in terms of where those asking rents are in the market and if there's been any uh, any material change, you know, 
maybe breaking it down between the larger bay logistics and, and small bay space? Well, I mean, the CB report that just came out a couple of days ago, which tracks the industrial market rents, quoted the Q1 market rents is up 4.8%. But admittedly, a lot of that was pre-COVID, right? And so I, we haven't seen a material change in rents um, downward. And so I think a lot of people, especially given that you're now going to see a decrease in the amount of speculative development going forward, expect that you know rents will hold pretty firm. And, and maybe continue to rise. I mean, it depends on people's perspective, right? And, and I think we're, we're of the opinion that rents are going to are not going to reverse; uh, that they're going to hold firm and, and for sure over the long term rise. Okay, great. I'll turn it back. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Again, if you have a question, please press star then one. Next question comes from Sarum. Relevance, BMO Capital. Please go ahead. Hey guys, uh, thanks for your comments this morning. Uh, my first question was on the 177,000 square feet termination that there is factor. Can you give us some color on that? So can, can you repeat the again, question? Please? You broke up a little bit there. Sorry. Yep, sorry. Uh, my question was on the 177,000 square foot uh, the termination that is in the leasing this quarter. Uh, any color on that? Yeah, so that really it relates to two different spaces. One of those spaces was I think a tenant we've talked about previously was a single tenant building uh, in Atlanta, where the tenant the lease was for two or three more years, but the tenant came to us at the end of last year and said that they were having some financial difficulties and was going to be vacating the space. They actually vacated during the quarter and, and are now out of the space. That was 150,000 of the 176,000. The other uh, 26,000 relates to a space in our Carlson project here in Minneapolis that um, the tenant lease was up at the end of December and they did not renew. That space has since been uh, released with a lease commencement that should start uh, later in the second quarter. Thanks. That was, that was a great color. And my second question is generally around COVID-19 and the impact you're seeing on the tenant supply chains. Like I know it's too early right now and we're still in the situation, but are you seeing that come into your leasing in terms of like greater demand for spacing from especially from the logistics guys? It, it, you know, it's, it's early. I mean, I, I do. I mean, I think clearly you're hearing, you know, most of our peers discuss, you know, with a, a view that there there is going to be increased activity, you know, coming either in the midst of or coming out of the pandemic just based on increased e-commerce adoption rates and reshoring and the various phenomenons we've all discussed and heard about. Um, it's early. I think you're right. We're not seeing a huge uptick in demand. I think, as I said, there are there is a you know there's a one-off case where you know we just cut a, a a new lease deal in one of our Memphis properties for a supplier of hand sanitizer, and that was a you know that I think that may have been the fastest lease deal we've cut in our company history. It was a you know 48 hours from. Uh, from proposal to document, so that you know there there is some of that um, that it's probably you know episodic and short term in nature, but I you know I think the long term trends. I mean we we share the view that there are some some real changes and trends that are likely to to um, to be present coming out of the, the, this period of disruption that are, that should be a tailwind for our business, but we're not seeing you know, a flood of, uh, of new requests to expand leases, you know, new proposals for vacant space, et cetera. It's still, I think people are being cautious in the market. There are exceptions to that, you know, which are the obvious ones that everyone's reading about. 
you know, in terms of Amazon gobbling up space left and right and, and other e-commerce players really moving to, you know, expand in this environment. But, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing modest activity in the portfolio, but not a, not a wave of inbounds by any measure. Awesome. Thanks for the call, guys. I'll turn it back. Thank you. Our next question is from Himanshu Gupta, Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Thank you and good morning. morning. On, on, on capital recycling, uh, I think you mentioned that could be the focus in the near term. Have you identified any specific markets or properties uh, for that program and what could be the size for this disposition program in the near term? Yeah, and, uh, yes, uh, I guess the answer is we, we, have, a, we have a list that, that we've compiled of likely candidates that would be considered for capital recycling. Um, I'd say it's a mix. Uh, some are assets or markets that are non-strategic for us long-term. Others are assets where we don't think we can add additional value over the short or medium term. And, and others might be assets that are situational where the, the tenant or another buyer sees more value than we do. Um, as far as you know, what we would use proceeds for, I, clearly the preference would be for either lowering leverage or funding our private capital business, as we've said prior. And, and you know, as, as relative to the timing, look, I think we're on hold until the market stabilizes um, and, there, and, and the market returns to a strong pool of buyers who can actually get on a plane and tour the assets and conduct their due diligence. But, um, but you know, as far as the quantum goes, you know, I don't think we want to set an expectation there other than, um, you know, we've got a, we've got a, we've got a plan, we've got a list and, and the timing and amounts will be dictated based on market conditions. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. And then on the development with JV Partners, uh, one land parcel in Houston, I think one is in Minneapolis. Uh, any sense of timeline with respect to that construction? And uh, were you planning to do on speculative basis uh, prior to COVID when you uh, decided on these development projects? Yeah, so the Egan is a speculative development. Um, we had to demolish an existing building, and at that point, the demolition – today, the demolition is done, and they're, they're working on site prep, and so we're moving forward on that, and, and so that's under construction, I guess, or in the early stages of construction. The Houston project, uh, we're in the – I'll call it the final stages of entitlement, and so, you know, we've got to work through the, the last few pieces of the entitlement there, and then we'll be in a position where we can decide do we want to go speculatively um, do we want to chase build the suits or do we want to tap the brakes a little bit on that? The Egan project totals about 200,000 feet. Houston's about 500,000 feet. And interestingly, in Houston, we do have um, a prospect who might be a fit for the building. And so we're, we're, we're slow playing the, the start of construction just a little bit to see if that's real or not. Um, and then more generically, yes, we'll still consider speculative development. Where, you know, I know some of the other folks in the industry have said, We'll build a suit only at this point. That's not our corporate mandate. We're absolutely willing to take some development risk um, if we're rewarded for taking that risk. And so I think, again, our expectations have changed uh, relative to return expectations given the volatility in the market. But we're, um, we haven't put a red X over speculative development as an organization. All right. And so in terms of the appetite for development risk, uh, what's your view uh, of your private capital JV partners? 
I mean, has there been any change in risk appetite from them? Uh, would they be looking for more stabilized properties versus development upside? Uh, development upside? And do you think uh, the crisis will have any impact in terms of pace of deployment or ramp up of your private capital platform? Yeah, Hamachi, this is Matt. I, I, I mean, I, I guess I can't comment specifically on what their, you know, on their internal mindset um, with respect to those questions. But I think, you know, consistent with what Scott said, uh, you know, I think they view the prospect of speculative development, you know, in, in the current market the same way we do, you know, which is that we're being cautious. You know, there are, you know, transactions that we're probably stepping away from. There are transactions that we're still interested in doing provided we can reprice or kick the timeline out to a point where we've got better, better visibility and, and price discovery. Um, and then there's deals that are, you know, in a, in a location, you know, that we're bullish on and we're full steam ahead. So, you know, it, it's a mix for them. And I think, you know, the only thing we can really speak to is our conversations with respect to active prospects. And, you know, we're still engaged in discussions about doing new deals. So it's not, it ha it's not pencils down, um, but I think it's also, you know, there, there is, you know, more caution and, and more focus on price discovery for obvious reasons. Got it. Okay. And the final question is on bad debts. Uh, what has been the run rate in previous recessions or downturns uh, in some of your markets? And based on your experience, uh, what kind of bad debt allowance are you expecting uh, to keep in the current environment? So, uh... We, we don't have a lot of history with bad debt, with really with AR of any sort. <laughs> Generally, what's sitting on our balance sheet at any quarter end uh, or early any month end is true ups related to differences related on uh, prior year expense or CAM uh, true ups. We, you know, as of the end of Q1, we had a little under a million dollars of AR. Most of that, or I shouldn't say most, the biggest portion of that, about 340000 of that, related to the tenant in Atlanta that, um, that was vacating, and that was fully reserved for it at quarter end. We had one other small tenant that uh, hadn't paid rent that has since come current. Uh, the rest of what was on there was basically, like I said, cam true-ups and other things, and so we did not have any sort of reserve against that. There may have been one small $25,000 reserve in that, in that sense. Um, and so we don't have a lot of history with that. I think given the size of our portfolio in terms of the number of tenants, our approach has typically been to evaluate each tenant AR with, on an individual basis as opposed to use a, using a gross number across the top. But we'll, we'll evaluate that going forward if we wind up with AR from, from base rent or, or other pieces from regular billings um, at the end of Q2 or going forward. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the color. Uh, by the way, I was asking about like the market in general in the previous recessions, and not in particular your property. But uh, but I hear your I hear your message there, and uh, thank you for the color. And I'll turn it back. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you. The next question comes from Matt Cornat, National Bank. Please go ahead. Hi guys. Um, with regards to the uh, lease-up that's taking place post-quarter, I think it was the Pirate portfolio, um, were those commitments that existed uh, sort of prior to you acquiring the assets, or were those deals that you guys signed subsequent to acquiring them? Um, it, you know, it, it was a commitment. Um, it was pre-acquisition, 
but it was after we'd gone firm. So, I mean, I think typically in that context, the buyer's in the driver's seat. So, I mean, it was, it was a lease deal that we advocated for and cut, um, and we kind of owned the economics of it, if that makes sense. So, you know, it, it technically occurred prior to, to closing, but it was really a deal that, that we advocated for and had to sign off on. So, you know, we kind of view it as a deal that, that we cut. Um, and sure. then the other one, yeah, and, and the other space was, uh, you know, a small Minneapolis space. And then, um, I mean, so I think you're you're going to be at 97 plus percent. Um, is there anything structurally in that acquisition that would inhibit you from uh, outside of COVID-19 uh, uh, type situations getting back to 99 or so percent occupancy? No, I mean, we we bought, Matt, some, as you know, vacancy in the Pirate portfolio. Um, you know, there's 200,000 feet of a first-generation new space in Atlanta that we think is imminently leasable. In fact, it's the space next to the one that we leased while we were in due diligence. It's the rest of the building. And then there's 300,000 feet in Dallas, which we, which we think is imminently leasable. And so, you know, 500,000 feet of our vacancy in our 32 million feet is, is stuff that we bought with that portfolio, and we're, we're, and we're optimistic that we're going to be able to lease that. Now, we've as part of our purchase, of course, we've underwrote 12 months of downtime, but we're, you know, prior to COVID, we were hoping to outperform that, I guess. We'll see um, going forward if we can or not, but, uh, but the, no, there's nothing that we're looking at vacancy saying, well, that's going to be static vacancy. We don't think it's leasable. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have loading or it doesn't have parking or anything like that. All of our vacancy, we think, is, is leasable. Okay. No, that's good color. Uh, and last, with regards to the Atlanta property, is there any any prospects on that or is it a sale candidate at some point the 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 vacancy in atlanta yeah yeah i I think we've had some lookers but nothing we're not trading paper with anyone at this point okay thanks guys yeah you bet that concludes our question and answer session i'd now like to turn the conference back over to mr scott fred erickson please go ahead all right. Uh, well, once again, thanks for your time and your interest in WPT Industrial REIT. Uh, if you have any questions at any time, please feel free to give us a call. We'd love to chat. Thanks again. Goodbye. Conference is now concluded. Thank you for attending today's presentation. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.